Welcome to Talking Wyndham, your weekly insight into the people who make our city surprising, fascinating, vibrant and interesting. Talking Wyndham is an initiative of the Committee for Wyndham. All the latest news and events are on our website and Facebook page. Hi and welcome to the Talking Wyndham podcast for the Committee for Wyndham. My name is Kevin Hillier and of course you can jump on the Committee for Wyndham website or the Facebook page and find out uh, all about the programs that are on offer, uh, all the benefits of being a member, how you can go about becoming a member and basically what's going on around the city of Wyndham. It's all there on the website and on the Facebook page. Today on this edition, we're meeting Jack Fitzpatrick, a most interesting young man, uh, not quite 30, and has already packed an enormous amount into his life, some great challenges that he's faced and conquered and some that he continues to face on a daily basis. Many will know him as an AFL footballer. Many will know him as an ambassador for Diabetes Victoria and a young man who uh, is uh, cutting his teeth now in the coaching world uh, in AFLW footy as one of the uh, assistant coaches for the... uh, Western Bulldogs uh, for their women's team. So let's meet him now. He's got a great story to tell, many great stories to tell, uh, but the one about growing up in Wyndham and going uh, to where he is today is a beauty. So here he is, our guest this week on the Talking Wyndham podcast, Jack Fitzpatrick. Happy to say my guest on the Talking Wyndham podcast this week is Jack Fitzpatrick, uh, and we'll find out uh, Jack's story as we go along, but an uh, uh, incredibly nice young man who joins me now. G'day, Jack. How are you? Oh, you've always been too kind to me, Kevin. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, look, there's, a, there's so much to talk to you about, but let's start with uh, with growing up in uh, in Wyndham Vale. Yes, yes. I uh, grew up out here most of most of my life in, uh, in Wyndham, like my parents, um, we sort of settled in Werribee. They grew up, they were both northern suburbs, um, West Heidelberg and, and Northcote was where they initially grew up. And um, we were living in Ocean Grove when I was born. Um, but basically, the old man was working in Geelong and mum was working in South Melbourne. This is going back to the early 90s. I was born in 1991. So they basically settled on Werribee because it was halfway between the two. So, um, yeah, that was sort of where we ended up. And, um, we, we did move around a little bit in my early life. I think by the time I was 10, I'd lived in nine houses or something, oh, to be honest. It was right. different parts of the world, and we lived in New South Wales for a year and, and all those kinds of things just um, just for Dad's work. But, uh, yeah, I, I went to primary school at St Andrews. I um, spent 12 months in Port Macquarie doing kindergarten and preschool up there. Um, we were meant to be up for Dad's work for two years, but finished early. So I came back to... Uh, Victoria two weeks before primary school started, um, went to St Andrews and I was the only kid that didn't know anyone because all the other kids knew knew each other from things like playgroup and kinder and yeah. stuff. So I, I was a bit of a loner for the first couple of months and or the first month at least and mum reckons she used to drive past to see me sitting by myself at recess and lunch and it used to break her heart to see but no, it was it was great. I loved going to St Andrews and, and then went to McKillop when, uh, when I got older. So when did the when did the growth spurt start? When did you start being the tallest kid in the in in the class? I was always one of the tallest. Um, I've certainly always been tall for my age. And as you know, mate, when I was a teenager, I was very very skinny. But when I was sort of younger, at that three or four age, I was actually very big and thick set and, oh, and really? quite solid as a kid. Wow! Yeah, believe it or not, I was very uh, very. Uh, strongly built as a sort of toddler, but then I just grew up and didn't grow out at all. So 
throughout primary school and definitely, you know, the early part of high school, I was one of the tallest kids. But, um, yeah, I had my growth spurt in early high school. So probably year seven, eight, and nine. Um, Mum had to buy me, we were the three different school blazers for my first three years at McKillop just oh. because I kept growing out of them. Um, and funnily enough, mum decided, no, that's it. I'll get in the biggest school blazer at McKillop possible, plus six inches on the length and the sleeves. <laughs> um, and what do you know? She got that for me in year nine, and ever since year nine, I've only grown three centimeters. So <laughs> it was it was an enormous blazer on me, mate. And um, I just looked a lot like an undertaker, to be honest, with this massive coat. <laughs> Would it look like David Byrne, the lead singer of Talking Heads? <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, it wasn't great, and the worst part was, like, you know, I was, I grew up to be 200 centimetres, um, which is hard enough to find someone to give you sort of secondhand clothes in the first place, but imagine being 200 centimetres plus an extra six inches put onto the, the sleeves <laughs> and the uh, and the body. It's uh, pretty impossible to find someone. Yeah, I can imagine. When did you when did you start playing footy? Was that uh, the Windervale Juniors? Yeah, mate, grew up, uh, played at Windervale, um, just by chance, more than anything else. Um, the house we were living in when we moved back from Port Macquarie was in Wyndham Vale. It was just around the corner from um, from the Wyndham Vale Oval and, and just, you know, pretty much next to almost where, you know, the, the, the castle it was that we called it, where the fish and chips and the milk bar, et cetera, was uh, on, on our avenue. So yeah. um, just by coincidence, I love footy, always love footy. And driving home from work one day, I think, my old man saw that um, there were people at the Oval and I was interested in playing. So he just drove me around there and, um, yeah, signed me up and, and played. So I think I'm, I did Oz kick, I'm pretty sure, at Galvin Park from memory. Um, so, you know, always been around the Oval. Um, my old man grew up playing footy and he played it. But as I said, he was out in the northern suburbs and, yeah, played at Wyndham Vale, um, played from under nines onwards. So under nines, tens. Played two years of under 11 because I started a year early. And then from there, yeah, it was under 12, 14 and 16 and until things became more serious with your rep squads and, and the like. When did it become serious for you in terms in your own head that you might have been able to do something with your footy? <laughs> Depends what uh, how realistic I was. My, my mum remembers <laughs> it during the Sydney Olympics in 2000. So I would have been nine years old at the time. And apparently I came running in. I played footy in the winter and, and I did a little athletics in the summer. Athletics was my thing. A lot of my friends played cricket or basketball, but I loved athletics. And I, I was actually okay at it. I won some state medals in the, you know, the sprint hurdles and, and whatnot. And I came into the kitchen running to mum and I said, mum, mum, and I looked like I had this massive dilemma. Um, and as I said, the Sydney Olympics were on and, and the footy must have been on at the same time. And she goes, Jack, what's wrong? I said, oh, mum, how am I going to choose between playing AFL and running at the Olympics when they're on at the same time? So little nine-year-old Jack had a lot of confidence, obviously, that's for sure. Um, but no, it was probably, you know, when you're probably at the age of 15 or 16 when you make the, the Vic Metro team, um, had a pretty good carnival from that. Um, I guess before that, you know, you'd best of fairest in the WRFL and playing at Windervale and, and rep teams or interleague teams, then the Western Jets. And from there, you make the, it'll probably get serious about under 16. It was a Vic Metro team, went to the carnival. We won the nationals and I was fortunate enough to play really well and actually led the goal kicking at the national carnival, Kev. Me oh, and Michael huh? Walters shared the goal kicking. Um, now, what I don't tell people is that 
Um, Michael Walters actually played in the midfield for that carnival while I played <laughs> in the forward line. Um, but, you know, he's obviously a very good player. So from there, I was lucky enough to make the AIS. So that was the end of year 10 going into year 11. And I think there was some stat that, you know, out of the previous AIS groups, it's something like 80% of the players go on to be drafted. So from there, it goes from, you know, a dream that I've, I've wanted ever since I was a five-year-old kid to something that's probably, you know, realistic if you uh, if you keep working hard enough. <laughs> when did you first get sick, Jack? Was it in that latter page, uh, latter stage of your of your high school years? No, I was actually early. I uh, I, I got glandular fever in grade prep. Now, don't ask me how that happened because it's supposedly called the kissing disease. Correct. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people have heard. So, not sure exactly how I got glandular fever, but from grade prep, I had it. And from that is when I developed the chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, okay. um, and and probably the easiest way to describe the chronic fatigue is that almost every change of, of season, so probably three or four times a year, um, it was like a relapse of the glandular fever. Um, I would have, you know, literally the name's chronic fatigue, and I was at the point where um, at times my parents would literally have to carry me from the couch to the toilet because I didn't have the energy to get up and go. Um, which was okay when I was about five or six, but as I said, I grew pretty quickly, Kevin. Yeah. So by the time I was about ten years old, it was quite an effort for my mum and dad to pick me up and take me to the toilet. So um, yeah, I, I the most when I was in a lot the early high school days. Um, you know, your, your body's growing a lot. You're starting puberty. You're still trying to play. You're starting high school, so it's, you know it hurts you more when you're missing time. It's School, um, all of those kinds of things. So, um, again, I was probably fortunate that I had some really understanding people. I mean, you know, when you're playing for Windervale, you can get away with not training because I guess, you know, without pumping up my own tyres, you're one of the best players anyway, so it probably doesn't matter. Um, yeah. The Western Jets were, were pretty understanding and, and they were pretty good, and I'll always be thankful for them. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to sort of get by on natural ability um, up until, you know, that age of 16. And, you know, as I said, I used to be athletic. So I was probably gifted in the fact that even though I was quite tall, I, I was very quick and very athletic, which, as you know, it was right about that stage where that's what everyone was looking for in a footballer. So I was probably fortunate that I had, you know, the height and the speed that everyone was looking for. And, um yeah, so I made, you know, the Vic Metro squad and that was a challenge to play three games in a week and, and do that, you know, having not trained for the last five years. And Jeez. from there, I made the AIS. And, and it was in the AIS where we really put a plan in place to to get me up to a standard of fitness that was accessible because I was literally, at, at best, training once a week and, and playing. Um, and my first pre-season at TAC Cup level, we, we stripped it right back, and, and I was literally doing a 20-minute walk a day, and that was it. So, um, you know, you're playing at a pretty good level of football, and you're competing against people who are tra- doing full training and gym and those kinds of things. But um, I guess I always had it in my head as well that if I could match it with these kids who are doing these, you know, high levels, particularly if you look at the private school kids who have got the full school pro- uh, program and things like that, I could match it with them off limited training. I guess I always thought I had that upside that if I start training as much as what they can, then then I might have a pretty good scope for improvement. 
Football world is full of rumour and innuendo, and I, I can only assume that uh, at that stage everyone was whispering about, oh, yeah, he's, he's got this and he's got this, but he's got chronic fatigue syndrome, which m- must have must have hampered uh, a lot of clubs being interested in you, I would have thought. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I mean, even you, you look at, there were many doctors when I was growing up who, who didn't believe in chronic fatigue and thought yeah. it was all in, in the head, Yep. Um, which, you know, in some ways, it's probably similar to what we're seeing now with mental health. With you know, if you don't have it, it's very hard to quantify, and you can't see, you can't get a scan and see a broken bone. But for mental health or, or chronic fatigue and things like that, so you know, it was probably tough from that point of view that some people were probably questioning the legitimacy of it. Um, and you know, when you're a kid, all you want to do is train and play. So when you go out and train too often or, or play too much, and you end up in bed for two weeks and you're absolutely knackered, well, it becomes pretty tough. But I mean, I was, I guess I, it probably helped me mature, to be honest, Kev, because yeah. you know, as a 13, 14, 15 year old, if you've got sleepovers with friends or if you've got school footy at lunchtime or, or kicking the footy or whatever it is, and you know that you can't do it all um, because it will impact your health, it, you very quickly sort of learn what your body can and can't do, and you just have to be mature and accept that. So, in some ways, I think it helped me mature quickly, but, you know, getting back to your question of, actual clubs being interested, um, it's hard for me to say, to be honest, because look, most clubs are pretty accepting of, of people um, and, and who they are and what they've got. And the reality of it, Kev, I guess, is you know, in a normal workplace, you can't be discriminating against people who have health issues of any description. So You can't, um, but, footy, but footy tends to. Footy has tended to over the years. We all know that. That's a reality. Yeah, no, you're right. It certainly wouldn't have been a, a helpful thing, but I certainly know Melbourne, who, who ended up taking me. They, the mindset that I just spoke about of my feeling of improvement might be a lot higher than others of my peers, considering the, the lack of training I had been doing. Um, so there's probably two ways to look at it. One was, geez, this kid's going to be more trouble than what he's worth. Or <laughs> the other one was, if we can get him right, there, there might be some significant upside. You, you draft. Uh, you were drafted to the pick number fifty in two thousand and nine. The night of the draft, you were actually at your graduation uh, with your with your mates at McKillop. I was the same night high school graduation. We were at the Mooney Valley Race Course the same night as the draft, um, which was pretty surreal. And it was a pretty good night. But the celebrations leading up to it, if the draft had have been held. At the start of the season, I probably would have been a top three pick, Kev. I would have been a lot for top five, but I just had a really disappointing season in my top age under 18 year. Um, just through form, uh, a couple of injuries here and there. I, I broke my thumb in the end and didn't play the second half of the season. Yep. Um, and I sort of went from being a you know a guaranteed top three pick to, geez, is, is he going to get trusted at all? Um, I probably knew deep down and Again, you might say this is arrogant, but um, I probably knew I would end up on a list in some way, whether it be a rookie draft or, or a draft pick. But um, it was a relief for sure to, to sort of get my name read out at pick 50. And I make the joke that um, that was the year that Melbourne got done years later for tanking, um, if you recall. And well, that, sorry, they got found not guilty for tanking, Kevin, but got fined for it, which is something I find remarkable in itself. But yeah, true. I digress. Um, but <laughs> That was the year that Scully was pick one and Trengove was pick two, but I keep telling everyone that they actually tanked to make sure they could get me at pick 50. That was what happened, Jeff. That was exactly what happened. So, no, look, it was a great night at school, but 
a bit subdued the celebrations as well because obviously Mad Jack Dawes was my year level at school and he missed out that night and would later go on to get to get rookie drafted. Um, but we had some other players in my year level as well who were outside chances of being picked up and, and they were probably more rookie possibilities than, than draft possibilities. But a lot of players from the Wyndham area who went on to be really good footballers, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking players like Dan Lawson, Joey Huller and Jesse Fortune are probably the three that come to mind. Yep. Um, these guys, as I said, they were more outside chances, but chances nonetheless. So, um, it was probably it was great for me, and I was pumped. But at the same time, for, for you know, Majak and, and those other guys, it was a bit of oh, geez, that's that's a bit disappointing as well. Your uh, your debut uh, against Port Melbourne in Adelaide, uh, the the last round of the twenty eleven season, it it must have seemed to you that it it took forever to get to that point. It did. Port Adelaide and Melbourne um, in Adelaide uh, on a Sunday afternoon in the last round of the year. Now this is. If we go back to 2011, when Port Adelaide were um, almost irrelevant, wasn't the right word, but no one was turning up to watch. Yeah, um, and it was Melbourne who, at the time, you know, after Dean Bailey had been, you know, unfortunately sacked, and so we went exactly a big ticket item. So last game of the year, Sunday afternoon, and this is before Adelaide Oval. This is when they were still playing at Footy Park, but the game was actually at Adelaide Oval. So. I don't know how many people actually watched it, to be honest with you, Kevin, probably apart from my family and friends. But um, And I don't know what the stats are, but because it was at Adelaide Oval, I certainly think I would be one of, if not the first player to debut at Adelaide Oval. Yeah, um, said, this is in the days of, of football park. So, um, yeah, it was, look, for me, it was a great day. I, I remember it clear as day. Um, and it was actually not a bad game. We unfortunately lost, which was a bit of a theme of my time at Melbourne. But... Um, yeah, it was the last game of my second season. And, you know, throughout that time, I'd already had two operations. I'd dislocated the shoulder. I'd uh, hurt an ankle, did a pretty severe ankle ligament injury. I'd had a uh, stress fracture in my feet. I had um, had a nose uh, surgery. And, and I'd also um, had osteitis pubis when that was sort of the biggest thing. So it was, uh. a, it was a long two years um, in conjunction with, unfortunately, you know, the sacking of Dean Bailey. So... Um, but, you know, it was a great day for me. I, I remember it as clear as day and still something I talk now that I am coaching, um, initially at Werribee VFL and, and now at the Bulldogs AFLW, talking to anyone who debuts is just to make sure you enjoy it because you only get one of them. And, and mine was 10 years ago now or nearly. Yep. But I still remember it. I can still almost smell the uh, the grass at Adelaide Oval. <laughs> uh, the next year uh, uh, brought another challenge to you. You were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Yes. Yes, I, I was. And that was certainly unexpected because, I'll be honest, every uh, every stereotype you have of diabetes, um, you know, you, you only get it when you're a little bit older or you, you might be a little bit overweight or you don't eat well, et cetera. That was exactly what I thought of diabetes. I didn't realize you could get it when you were younger. So, um, you know, it was a shock to me that a player who's 21, or 20, 20, turning 21, um, healthy, fit, has a good lifestyle, is active, eats well, that someone like that could be diagnosed with diabetes. Um, so, yeah, it was a shock and obviously a complete change to my life because now all of a sudden you're having to inject yourself all day, every day, or inject yourself four times a day and um, before bed, um, but you're having to monitor these sugar levels. So, um, yeah, it was a complete shock. 
and I might say a bit cheekily, um, but also trying to use a bit of humour, that it was only the second worst thing to happen to me that year after Mark Neal becoming coach of Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, fair enough. You do, you do have to. Yeah, one thing you do have to maintain, Jack, is your sense of humour in all in all situations. Um, that, that's it's obviously had a, a, an enormous effect on your life and and on where you've taken Europe you're an ambassador now for diabetes Victoria and that and, and the importance of getting the message out about uh, that people young fit healthy people can get it absolutely um you know as you said I am an ambassador at diabetes Victoria and for obvious reasons it's something I'm uh, very passionate about um and initially I was very reluctant to talk about it you know I was okay. a 20 21 year old um when I, it was two weeks before I turned 21 was when I was diagnosed. And um, what was sort of, you know, quite confronting was that as a 20-year-old kid, uh, you're diagnosed with this life-changing condition. And that night, it's on the news. I, this player has this medical condition. So, you know, I remember the worst thing I had to do was call both of my grand, grandmas because, um, you know, we speak to them quite regularly and very close with family. But having to tell them that I've got this and, you know, what grandparents can be like that. They love you to death. So yep. that, having to tell them, because if I didn't, knowing they would see it on the news, that was confronting in itself. But as a result of that, you then get people emailing the club saying, I'm, I'm seeing that Fitzpatrick has this. I've got diabetes and my kids got diabetes. Um, how do they do it? Now, I'm obviously always more than happy to talk to people, but I was a 21-year-old, just turned 21-year-old kid who, I'd only had this thing for two or three months. And here I've got people who have got diabetes for 20 years asking me for advice. And I just mm. doubt very, uh, who am I to be giving you advice? It, it didn't make sense to me. But um, eventually I sort of came, came around to the idea of, of being more open about it. Um, I, I met these kids at a clinic that AFL players do. You run clinics. And these two kids, um, both of them were doing the clinic. They were twins. And... Um, I remember they, they were doing it really well and after the drill that they were with me, they actually pulled their shirt up and they were both revealing both revealed they were wearing an insulin pump. Oh right. So after the clinic was finished, I um, went over to speak to them and their mum and, and their mum uh, told me that they weren't even Melbourne supporters, but they actually purely went to the clinic because they knew I would be there and they wanted to see the, the footballer with diabetes. And for me that sort of really reinforced that they don't care whether I'm Chris Chris Judd or Buddy Franklin or Gary Ablett or, or Jack Fitzpatrick, they can see someone doing what they want to do, what they dream to do. And for them, it just is a powerful message of reinforcement. And I look back to when I was growing up at that point, and, you know, we, we spoke that I had chronic fatigue earlier. And I remember how much I looked up to Alistair Lynch and admired him because, yep. as you know, he was a superstar and, and he had chronic fatigue. And for me, that was just, if he could do what I'd dream of doing every day and he's got what I've got, then it showcases that it can be done. So from there, that was when I realized it wasn't a, 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 a factor that I was, wasn't the best player in the AFL and it wasn't going to be a, oh, hang on, who are you? You're a nobody. Why are we hearing from you? It was just speaking out, I guess, on behalf of, of everyone out there living with diabetes or affected by diabetes that, um, you know, I've, I've got this condition, but with careful management, um, I can still live my live my dreams and, and chase my goals. And um, from there, that was sort of uh, how the, the partnership with Diabetes Victoria started. I actually approached them in about 2014 and just said, look, this is my story. This is who I am. This is my background. Now, you don't have to use me for anything. 
um, but I'm absolutely here and, and open to, to help with anything. And you know, I've been an ambassador with them now for what would that be about seven or so years, maybe yeah. eight years. And um, you know, now I host a podcast and speak at events and do talks. And, and as I said, just showcase that um, it, it is possible to, to chase your dreams and or live your dreams and chase your goals. Yep. You overcame the chronic fatigue. Uh, you've, you've learned to live with diabetes in your professional sporting career, but then in the end, the concussion was was what got you, Jack. Yes, my ninth concussion was the uh, ninth, the last game Goodness of me. footy I, I played. So you know, it's, it's quite a substantial number to, to deal with. Um, I actually got two early in my life. Um, in about grade five and six, I got one playing local footy. It was Werribee versus Wyndham Vale for. Probably an off the ball incident that wasn't uh, probably would have got quite a few weeks in the AFL. Yeah. Um, and, and then another one which was uh, it was actually playing school footy for St Andrews against um, you know we used to do the round robin or the lightning premiership against all the other schools, Irimu, Thomas Chernside, etc. Now I'm not sure if that still goes on, but it was just a tackle, um, nothing dirty in it. I, it was just a swing tackle, and my head hit the ground and. Um, so I got two quite early, but then had no issue with concussion. Now, you know, that we're getting better these days with uh, understanding concussion and noticing concussion. So maybe there were times I was concussed as a teenager growing up and, and didn't realize it. Oh, I'm yeah. not sure. Yep. Um, but, you know, in my AFL time, it was another seven that I got. And just progressively, they, they did get worse and worse. And, and I must be honest, I never once thought about retiring or, or, or quitting playing football until the last one that I got. It was it was pretty severe. Um, it was different to all the others. I didn't drive for six weeks. I, I was in a pretty bad way for a while. And it was the first time I really thought, geez, is this all worth it? Um, and it was after that anyway that in the end I didn't make the decision, Kev, because it's the doctors and specialists that you're dealing with recommended or certainly suggested that I no longer play contact sports. So, um, you know, my, my first reaction was, well, if you've ever seen me play football, I don't play a contact sport anyway. <laughs> uh, but um, again, the, the humour probably, the, the doctors didn't see the, the funny side of that. But yeah. um, no, look, it, it was probably deep down. I probably knew it was the right decision. Um, I think my mum and my dad were, were glad when it was sort of taken out of my hands because very easy when you're not feeling well and you've got headaches and you've got lightheadedness and dizziness to, to say you're not going to play football. But six months later or 12 months later, when you're feeling okay and you wake up and you're not bad and it's a sunny day or might be spring and the finals are, are coming and you actually physically feel okay, you think, oh, geez, could I, could I have a go at this again? But I think deep down, I, I probably know it was the right thing to do. And in the end, it, uh, yeah, I'm no longer or not allowed to play footy and, and you know it, it probably has led me to coaching and, and certainly coaching earlier than I would have thought because you know my draft year was players like Dawn, Fife and Dustin Martin so if I was you know physically in a different shape or I'd, I'd most likely still be playing footy but um, unfortunately that's just the way things fall and probably the one thing that I will say in the end I can look back on with pride is that I actually it might sound lame but I remember being in hospital when I did get diagnosed with diabetes. It was, you know, the, the family come in and, and my partner at the time came in and visited me and all those kinds of things will be here to support you and, and it's all very nice. But when you're in the hospital bed at night and you're by yourself and the nurses have finished their night run and all those kinds of things, you are sitting there by yourself and you're thinking a lot. And, and I did make myself a promise that 
Um, it will not be diabetes. That is the reason I don't play AFL. Um, it was not going to stop me. I was I was happy to to be delisted or, or to be determined not to be good enough. Or I was happy to you know get to the end of my career and retire or, or whatever it was. You know, if people didn't think I was good enough, that was fine. I could have been content with that. But um, yeah, considering that diabetes is very much something you control and, and something that. Um, I guess you can manage. I've made a promise to myself that it was never going to be the reason I retired or it was never going to get in the way of my football. And in the end, it was the, the concussions that got me. So, um, you know, I, I was always proud that the diabetes, yeah, I was able to work with it and, and play some pretty good footy um, after being diagnosed. Well, we have one moment we have to uh, we have to talk about, uh, and to finish up, I want to, I want to use this as the, uh, as the ending. If you Google Jack playing for Hawthorne, Against Collingwood, there is there is the moment, isn't it? That that that's got to be the moment of your footy career that you will most cherish. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Um, and look, there's, there's probably a bit of a backstory to it, Kev. Um, that, that you know, I'll try and be, be quick. But it was I, I was uh, at Melbourne for six years, and after six years, we sort of decided to part ways. And and I felt, you know, I had more to offer, and they didn't, and, and that was fine. Um, Hawthorne had just won their third premiership in a row in 2015 and asked me to come and play for them. And they didn't need to ask me twice, that's for sure. I grew up as a Hawthorne supporter. They, you know, were such a widely respected organisation and, and it was a great thrill to, to be asked or to be interested um, or to have them interested in you. Um, but throughout that year, um, I had a really good pre-season, was doing a, a lot of good stuff and um, Hawthorne actually throughout the pre-season would get the players as a feed, way of giving feedback to pick what their round one team would be if they were doing it based on the preseason. And it could be a really confronting thing because all the players are saying, okay, we'll have Hillier at full forward, we'll have Hodge in the ruck, whatever it might be. And if you miss out on the team, it was a way of saying, okay, you're not doing this, you're not working hard enough, you're missing too many kicks, your fitness isn't good enough, whatever the feedback would be. And the players actually had me in their team halfway through the preseason, which is great. And I played two preseason games. And in the second preseason game, I hyperextended my knee, which was um, unfortunate. And I, I was probably fortunate in a way that it's, a, it's an injury that you watch so many players do it and they hurt their ACL. So I was lucky not to, to do that. But I missed about six weeks with that. And at the same time, my granddad, who I was really, really close with, he was really sick. So... Spent a lot of time with him and he eventually passed away the Easter of that year. But I was coming back from the knee injury um, and my fourth game back from the knee injury at VFL level, I got concussed um, and that was a long one. It probably took me about eight to ten weeks from the injury to get back and play. And all the while of this, this was when Ruffy was going through his issues with cancer. Uh, Ryan Showermakers had been injured and there was another forward in the team who, who was also injured. I literally, Kevin... Only needed to be able to stand up, and I would have been able to play <laughs> yeah. every week that year. Um, and just unfortunately, I wasn't. So I was going through this concussion. Hawthorne were winning games. This was a year they were winning everything really closely, but they were you know going through four in a row, and it was just frustrating. And I get back with you know probably six games left in the year by the time I, I come back from concussion. And by this stage, their team's starting to be settled and they're getting ready for finals. And it was kind of like this thing started out like it was going to work out really, really well. And just through circumstances, it wasn't. Um, but, you know, you got back and played some reasonable footy at VFL. It might have taken me one or two weeks to get back into sort of the, 
the swing of it, but started playing some good footy. And then just by chance, John Segler, who, you know, is still there now, he hurt his knee in the second last game of the year, um, which which opened the doorway for me to get a game. So this highlight that you're talking about, Hawthorne versus Collingwood, round 23, MCG, um, we needed to win to make the top four. Now, as you know, historically, if you make the top four, you give yourself the best chance. Now, the ironic thing is that the Bulldogs won the grand final this year and they didn't make the top four. But, um, yeah, we, we needed to win. And with about two minutes to go, we were a goal down and um, I was playing in the ruck and, and kicked a pretty handy goal. And um, I have actually retweeted it so much that I wish this was a joke, but it's not. But I've actually been suspended on Twitter, Kevin, for <laughs> tweeting copyright content too many times, <laughs> which is my own personal highlight of this goal against Collingwood. So I've been suspended on Twitter for sharing my own highlights too much. But, um, you know, I'm in an illustrious group with uh, with Donald Trump for being someone suspended off Twitter, mate. And uh, trust me, if any of us had uh, that highlight, we'd be doing exactly the same bloody thing, Jack. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was. It was just, you know, it was great that it was this effectively match winning goal when it was close and it was the last game of the year and everyone was watching and it's sort of this this big moment that, you know, still to this day people come up and say, oh, how was that goal? Talk me through that goal. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was just the lead up to it. There were so many things that in the lead up to that, starts with my granddad, the injuries, the frustration of this being your second chance at a different club and if injuries or, or things that have panned out differently, you've probably played 15 games by this game and it wouldn't have been such a shock. But um, yeah, it was just the way that it panned out and, and I got to play finals for two weeks and probably would have won a grand final if Isaac Smith could kick straight Kevin and, and didn't miss after the siren against Geelong. There you go. Yes, there you go. Another sliding doors moment. Hey, Jack, been great to catch up, mate. Thank you so much for your time. It's a wonderful story and may it continue for many, many years to come. Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, much appreciate having a chat. Well, thanks to Jack for his time. You must Google it and have a look at that goal. It is an absolute beauty for Hawthorne, beating Collingwood in the dying moments of that game. And uh, it's uh, one of those boyhood dreams of uh, kicking the the winning goal in a game of AFL footy, uh, particularly if you grew up in Melbourne. But thanks to Jack for his time. A terrific story. And uh, I'm glad that we got the opportunity to have a listen to it and bring it to you here on the Talking Wyndham podcast, where we have lots of great stories. And you can check them out on the website and the Facebook page and listen to previous episodes. Hope you can do that at some stage and enjoy some of the great stories and some of the great people that uh, we tell you about here on the Talking Window Podcast. Until the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Take care. Thanks for listening. Talking Wyndham is an initiative of the Committee for Wyndham. All the latest news and events are on our website and Facebook page.